So we have kind of started a new section here. So up until this point, we've covered kind of two main ideas that Paul just sort of tells us and then tells us again and over and over, making sure that we're understanding what he wants us to understand. He doesn't just say it once and move on, but he hits on these things over and over because they're important. I mean, it's the foundation of all of the good news and all of the hope and all of this, the, the stuff that we're going to see this morning. Um, it all comes from this foundation of, number one, that we are evil people. In and of, our, in and of ourself, right, we do not do good. There is no one righteous. There is no one good. There is no one seeks after God. In our own strength, that's not possible. Um, what we would call the depravity of man, right? We are completely and utterly depraved. Uh, Genesis 6 puts a, a good point on it when God says, the intention of man's heart was only evil continually. Right? If we're honest with ourselves, that is a true assessment. In and of our own strength, in and of ourselves, that's who we are. The intent, not even just the actions, but the intent of our heart is evil only continually. So Paul makes that point over and over and over again, right? He wants to make sure that we understand that we are under sin and that we are also under the law. And with these two things true, we are in a lot of trouble, right? If, if that's the end of the story, we are, we are a slave to our sin and we are a slave to the law. The law demands death as a penalty for our sin. So we look at that and we say, look, if something doesn't happen, if somebody doesn't come and rescue me, I'm in Big, big trouble. And so then Paul tells us, second point, and this is a glorious statement, right, that we saw. The righteousness of God is manifest apart from the law. It's manifest in Jesus Christ. It's manifest in the work that he did on the cross and what he accomplished. And the righteousness of God is shown to us through the life and through the work of Jesus. And more importantly than that, God invites us to be a part of that. He says, look, if you will just believe the promises that I've made to you, you can be justified. Abraham believed before there was a law, before there was any covenantal sign. And God says to us, same for you, right? Apart from the law, apart from any covenantal sign, you can believe if you believe in God. And so we are justified by faith, right? That's w these are the two major things that Paul has brought to us. Now we're going to make a major shift into chapter 5. We're going to start to see the benefits of this. If you have believed in Jesus, if you have been justified by faith, by believing in the promises of God, now Paul starts to say, hey, look, here are all of the many, many benefits, right? He doesn't list them all, but he starts. And so first of all, he, well, we, I do want to explore this a little bit. Verse 1, right? Therefore, we have been justified by faith. So before we get into the benefits, let's look at that. Because I think it's an important statement. You see, we as Baptists or wh wherever you come from, right? We have sort of cute little phrases, the, these idea of like, well, once saved, always saved. Which is good. It helps us to understand this idea. But really, like, that, that, that statement kind of doesn't do justice to what the Bible teaches us when it comes to the fact that when we have been saved, we can never, ever, ever lose that salvation. We use phrases like this because I think it's helpful. And it's also pretty much universal that as Baptists in the Baptist church, we grasp onto this idea. 
Once saved, always saved. We cannot lose our salvation. I, instead of that statement, I really like um, what Vodia said in many, many sermons over the years. He says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Every single day and twice on Sunday. Right? That's where we're at. If it were up to us to maintain our salvation, we would all have been, we would, every day we would seek the Lord and then lose it and seek the Lord and then lose it. And we would, once again, we would still be in a lot of trouble. But what we see here is that we have been justified, right? These are all past tense terms, but the Greek is actually one that is perfect right you have been justified you are being justified and you will be it it is forever there's nothing that you can do or that anyone else can do in order to make you lose that status of being justified this is the doctrine right it's a little more biblical language it's a little more rich and robust than once saved always saved but you have been justified Nobody can take that away from you. Why? Because God is the one who did it. He's the judge. Like, who could honestly, who do you think, what thing do you think could honestly walk into that courtroom setting and overturn the verdict of God Almighty? He looked at you and he said, justified because of the work of Jesus. Nobody can take that away from you. Nobody can overturn that. You can rest assured. I don't care what is going on in your life this morning. Hopefully that puts a smile on your face. Nothing can take that away from you. Nothing can take that status from you. You are justified because God declared you justified. It has happened. It cannot be changed. When you have faith in Jesus, this is a true reality for eternity. We are justified. Our sins are paid for. And once again, we talked about this last week, week before, I don't remember. It's more than just a not guilty verdict. God doesn't say, yeah, I know the things you have done. I'm I'm willing to overlook those. I'm willing to say, eh, let bygones be bygones, not guilty, go about your... Let's try not to do it again, right? We see these things, that's, that's what a judge would normally say. I'm going to give you some grace. You're not guilty, but in his mind, he knows you're guilty, but he's giving you a little bit of grace, a little bit of mercy. Go out, please don't do that again. That's not what's happening here. Your sins have been blotted out. They are gone. They are erased. You are declared just. Now God goes a little further than that right so that's the first half of verse one therefore we have been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ i want you to think back it's been almost 30 years i guess now right one of the most shocking verdicts in american history it was 94, 95, right, when O.J. is declared not guilty. I mean, it was important enough that I remember, so I'm going to, you know, tell you how young I am. I was in fourth grade when that happened, and I remember being in class, and I remember my teacher, fourth graders, turning on the TV, stopping class, and turning this on to watch the verdict, because it was an important thing in American history, right? And we recognize that it is one of the most shocking things that has ever happened in the court system. And so we know that he's declared not guilty. But the question I have is, was he at peace with that judge afterwards? Do you think the judge looked at him and said, well, 
comes back not guilty, you and I are friends now. In fact, many people who knew him did not continue being his friend after that. Why? He's not guilty in a court of law, but everybody knew what was happening. Everybody knew, we, we all knew, like, this dude is clearly guilty, or at least we think we knew. And so... He has, a, he has this verdict, not guilty. He has this verdict, and there is no peace. There's no peace in his life. I, mean, I don't know the guy personally, right? But we can see by the spiral that he took over the next 20, 30 years, there doesn't seem to be any peace in this guy's life. Even though he's declared not guilty, how many of you would have said, oh, well, that's what the verdict was. Let's be buddies. I mean, I don't know that much about football. I know he won the Heisman, right? I know he was a really impressive football player. I know he was in movies. I know star power, right? He had a lot of clout. And a lot of the times when we see that, we think, yeah, of course I would want to hang out with somebody who is as cool as that and who is as well known as that. But we look at him and we say, no way on earth, because this is what I think I know about him. I would not, will not have peace with the man. Now think about the peace that God is offering to us. You see, God doesn't just think that you're a sinner. He knows every single thing you have ever done, you have ever thought. And he says, I offer peace with you. That is the power of the cross. That God knows every deep, dark secret that each one of us has. And he looks at you and he says, I grant you peace. I grant you access. That is unbelievable. That is the power of the cross. That is the, that is the magnitude at what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection. It wasn't that God just says, okay, you and I are okay, not guilty. I even would declare you justified, but I know the things you've done. I know the things you have thought. And while I see you as justified, there's no way that you and I can have peace with one another. Right? We've experienced that in this life. Somebody has done something to you horrific, and you've... The Lord grants you the ability to forgive, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're at peace with that person. God knows everything you have done, and he says, I grant peace with you. Where does this peace come from? The peace that we have is only achieved through Jesus Christ. That's what verse 1 tells us, right? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we live in a world that is like obsessed with this idea. We want peace. We're willing to give billions of dollars to countries halfway across the world in hopes that there will be peace. Every beauty pageant contestant on the planet Right? If they don't say that they want world peace, like, well, you automatically lose. Right? That's what they, everybody says. That's what we're going for. We create things like NATO. We create organizations and we build weapons, not necessarily so that we can harm other people, but that it will, in, it will bring about peace. Right? That is the desire of most of humanity. The problem is most of humanity is looking for it in the wrong place. We're trying to find peace 
through our own efforts. We're trying to find peace through these political things, and the only place that we can find it is in Jesus. He is the only one that offers it. And here's something that even as Christians, I think we struggle with. See, here's the idea. We all think about the future and the new creation and the new heavens, and we're like, we're, we're totally okay with the fact that we find peace there, right? Oh, that's going to be great. There's going to be peace with God in the future, whether in heaven and then in the new creation. We don't struggle with that. Most people don't, right? This, this is totally normal. It's totally fine. But what about the peace that God has promised you in this very moment? What about now? In the midst of your sinfulness, in the midst of my sinfulness, how in the world am I supposed to find peace in these moments? It makes me think of back 50s, 60s, and sometimes for some people even beyond that. You see, when World War II is over, there's all these peace treaties that are signed. Right, 1945, there's Victory in Japan Day. How many of you, you don't have to age yourself, maybe, maybe there's nobody in here who was alive during that time, but we all know the reality that just because that treaty was signed doesn't mean instant peace between Americans and Japanese people who lived in this country. Right? It wasn't overnight. A treaty is signed, that doesn't mean that there was instant peace. Peace. And I think a lot of the times that's how we think of our relationship with the Lord. Yeah, the treaty was signed. I came forward. I, I made a profession of faith. I was baptized. The treaty has been signed, but the effects of it are only going to happen one day long in the future. That is not what the Bible teaches. That's what we believe. That's what we allow ourselves to believe. But it's not what God is doing. And that's hard, right? Because back in Romans 1, we read what the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness of men. And we think, well, every single day I'm unrighteous. Every single, single day I do or see, think multiple things that are unrighteous and ungodly. How is it that I have peace with the Lord? God's wrath is being revealed against those sinful things. And this is how we are tempted to think. How foolish is it to think that Christ and His work on the cross is enough to save us, it's enough to justify us, but somehow it's not enough to sustain us. It's not enough to sustain the peace. And so we go out and we try and do and we try and work and we say, God has saved me, but if this relationship is going to be maintained, I better put forth all of this effort. I better be doing all of these things, be more obedient than not obedient if my peace is going to be maintained with God. That is foolishness. It's not the Bible. It's not what God is teaching us. That's not what our obedience is there for. Now you're going to say, and Paul knows it, right? Because he's going he's to pose the question in chapter 6. Well, then, what, what of sin? Shouldn't we just keep on doing that? Then that's fine. Seems like that'll be okay. But we're not there yet. And you know what? We're not even going to address it yet. Because I want you to sit here in this uncomfortableness. I want you to grab on, grasp the reality that no matter what you do, good or bad, Christ is the one who is maintaining the peace between you and the Father. 
It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with how good you are, how obedient you are. That's not what obedience is for. We are not called to obey the commands of God so that we can increase the level of peace or increase the level of love that God has for us. Christ is maintaining that. Not you. Not me. We have peace with God regardless of what we do. And we don't like that. We want to think that we need to do something, right? We're okay with the fact that we've been saved by faith alone, by grace in God. But now, now that the Holy Spirit is in us and it's awakened our mind and we have been enlightened, right? Our eyes are open. We see what is good. We see what is true. That must mean that I better be doing all of the right things if I'm going to maintain that peace. And what's really sad is that this is prevalent in the church. I remember my days when I was in youth ministry. I remember my days as a youth going to camp. And every camp I ever went to, whether it be as a teenager or as a youth minister for like 12 years, every time the speaker would stand up there and every time they would, get, they would talk, they would do their Bible study, and at the end... The lights would dim and the band would come back up. And if, the, if any kid in the room had sinned in the last month, there was this rededication to the Lord, right? Come forward and rededicate your life as if it has anything to do with you rededicating yourself. As if that accomplishes anything. It doesn't. And yet we live in this world where we think, oh man, I was, I was really bad this week. I better pray extra hard. You, you, what, what, is, what do you think you're accomplishing by that? We're not accomplishing anything. Christ is the one who is maintaining us. Christ is the one who sustains us. That is not what we believe, though. right? It, we, we might intellectually think it, but that's not how we act. And I want you to sit in this. Be uncomfortable with the fact that God is doing it all. That He is the one who sustains you. If you allow yourself to believe otherwise, it is a lie from the pit of hell. Don't let it die. Don't watch it die. Kill it. Because if you don't destroy it, it will destroy you. God has granted us peace. Not through you. Not through your dedication to reading your Bible every day and to praying every day, but through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't hear anything else this morning, please take verse 1 and hold on to it tight. Because this is not what we hear most often. But this is what is true. Now look at verse 2. Not only do we have peace, right? It's like a Billy Mays commercial. But there's more, right? Here comes more and more and more good things. More benefits of having faith and being justified by that faith. It doesn't just justify us. And say, now, but go about your merry way. I don't really want to be around you. I've justified you. One day you'll get into heaven. But I know the things you've done. And eh, not really at peace with you. No. He justifies you. And then he says, we are at peace with one another. And then, as if that weren't enough, God looks and says, and now I grant you access to my heavenly throne room. That is what God is telling us. We don't just have peace. We have full 
access to the Father at all times. We have more than peace. If you think about it in the sense of the world we live in, right? We're at peace with the countries around us for the most part. But can you just hop in your car and say, I'm going to now go live in Canada. You might can visit. You don't have that kind of access, right? That's another step. That's something beyond just we are at peace with this other country. But to have that kind of access is something deeper. It's something more. Our justification, it produces peace. It produces, it allows us access into God's throne room. And Hebrews even goes a little further, right? How are we to approach God? What's that word? Boldly. That makes me cringe. I think, whoa, 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 whoa. If I'm going to walk into God's throne room, I better, I better, you know, be somber and maybe, maybe crawl. I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm not, it doesn't seem fitting. It seems out of place for me to think that I could walk into the throne room of God boldly. And the only reason that I think that way is because I think I'm walking into God's throne room under my own merit. And if I ever thought, when we think that, when we cringe at this idea that we can walk in boldly, it's because we think, I'm doing it under my own steam. What are the good works in which I can present to God? Not what, if, you, if we're thinking that way, don't, just don't go in at all, right? You shouldn't even crawl in. You shouldn't army crawl in on your belly. That's not even enough. That's not humble enough if you're going in under your own steam or under your own merit. But the access that we have is through the completed work of Jesus. We don't boldly approach the Father in His throne without Christ there with us. That would be foolishness. But because we are going, because Christ is walking beside us, and really maybe even in front of us as our advocate, we can boldly stand in. Why? The Father is not looking at you and me. He's looking at His Son. He's looking at what Jesus accomplished. You think He's not proud of that? You think He's not overjoyed when Jesus brings one of us, a lowly sinner, into the Father's presence and said, this one has believed in me. He has put His faith in me. He is welcome. And God the Father says, I see Jesus in you. We have been given his justification. We have been given peace the same way that Christ has it with the Father. And we have been given access in the same way. Now this is really important. Because I know that some of you, I've heard stories, right? It seems like most of you actually have not, were not raised in the Baptist church, raised elsewhere, raised outside of it. Some of those churches may have told you tried to teach you that there had to be some kind of mediator. Whether that be a priest, whether that be Mary, whether that be that you have to be in the right place or in the right building or doing the right things. If you're going to approach God's throne, you better do all of these things in preparation for that. As if we're living under the Old Testament law and the priest is cleansing themselves and putting on the right clothes and doing all of these things before they walk in. You see, there is no mediator. We don't need a priest. As Matt was talking about earlier, we, from 1 Peter, we are the priesthood. We get to step into God's presence. 
We don't need someone to stand between us. He has, gained, he has granted us full access. The only mediator we have is Christ. The only one that needs to walk with us, beside us, in those moments is Jesus. Because he is the one who has paid our sin. No man on this planet should step between you and God. Last thing is this hope that that we see. 2nd part of verse 2 down through the end of this passage. So verse 2 says, right through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. So this is two sides of the same coin, right? There is some rejoicing that is happening. Number one, we are rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Number two, we are rejoicing in our sufferings. It's an interesting pair of things. You see, we are hopeful of the glory of God that is to come. How many of you look around in the world and see the things that are happening and say, man, God, if you would just let your glory fall on this situation, Lord, if you would just let your glory fall and stop the endless murdering of children in the womb day after day is happening, hundreds of thousands, millions every year of these children who are dying, Lord, let your glory fall and stop this. We hope For the day that that's going to stop. We hope for the day when the world is not going to be preaching to us that little boys can become little girls and that God created us wrong or he made a mistake or whatever it is that they think. God, we ask that your glory would fall in these situations. That common sense would come back and that truth would come back. And we're hoping for the day that that comes. We're hoping for this glory. And we know that it's coming because God has promised it to us. We know there's a new creation. We know there is a world coming in which all of these things that trouble us in this moment will be gone. But it's not here yet. And so we're hoping for these things. We look to the future. There is coming a day when the glory of God will be fully revealed. Every knee will bow Every tongue will confess. And even the, the evil and the sinfulness that's in our own hearts will finally be banished forever. One of the hardest things about being a Christian is fighting that temptation every single day. And then at the end of the day recognizing, man, I completely messed that up. I completely failed. I didn't even try. I'm not fighting. What is wrong with me? And we go through this battle and then we return to Jesus And he gives us grace and he gives us love. But at the end of the day, even with that grace and love, if you're anything like me, Lord, just make it stop. Please. I'm done with this cycle. I'm so tired of the cycle of every single day fighting and fighting and fighting. I just want to be done with this. And the full glory of God is going to be revealed one day. There will come a day when we don't have to fight that anymore. This is where our hope lies. God's glory is in shadow, but one day it will be revealed to us in full. And so in the meantime, we're suffering. We're suffering through our own sin. We're suffering through the sins of the people around us. We're suffering through all kinds of things 
that are going on in this world. But the suffering is not in vain. There is this chain of events that happens, right? Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. It reminds me back to the days when I was in high school. This is a really superficial example, right? It reminds me back to when I was playing and I was in band. Um, yep, that was me, right? Didn't play football. I wasn't a cool kid. But I was in marching band, so. Um, and I played the drums, right? And that's what, I mean, I loved it. And the first year that I started playing, um, it played the tenors, which are those things, you know, that sit out in front of you. There's quite a, four of them, depending on where you're at, right? And it's really heavy. And they're really hard, right? Because that guy at the snare drum, he's only got one drum, man. Like, I've got five. What's going on? Like, I've got to be five times as good as him, right? And so it was really difficult, and not just was it, was it hard to read the music and the skill level that was difficult, but that thing is heavy. This was pulling on my back and my back and my shoulders hurt constantly. My hands are covered, like the, the muscles are hurting and my hands are covered in, um, in blisters. And it just like every 10 minutes I was having to set that thing down because it was too heavy. I was suffering. I mean, if you could call, I don't know if that's the right word, right? But it, it, was, it was hard, right? So we, we'll call that suffering. By the end of that first year... The blisters turned to calluses. The sore muscles turned to strength. And I could carry that thing for hours when I used to only could carry it for 10 minutes. And so at the end of that year, I remember having hope. Next year, maybe it won't be so bad. And then I wouldn't do anything with that thing for eight months until the next, right, until the next fall. And then it start all over again. And there was always the hope, right, that I would be able to do better. And eventually I did. And eventually, and if you've ever played drums, I mean, if you, when I was in high school, my forearms were bigger than my biceps. Like, I mean, it just, it, it works all of these muscles. And if you've ever played drums, you know that you have this weird muscle in your hand that nobody else has, right? If, if you were to do this and like, look at this muscle right here, most people, it's not even there. Mine is like the size of a golf ball. It used to be. I mean, there's all of these things that through the suffering, you have this endurance. And through that endurance, you have a hope that the suffering will go away. And in, in this very superficial example, you see, we've all been there in something like this, right? How much greater is it when God is doing this with our faith? When something goes really, really wrong in your life, the first time, it may take weeks, it may take months of suffering before you see the light at the end of that tunnel, before you realize that God still loves you, that he's still in control, that he's still working all of those things through for your good. A big bout of suffering happens and it takes a long time. But then the second time, it's less. And you recognize, God, he's there. There's a little bit of endurance. And after 10 years of suffering and after 20 or 30, however long you've been following the Lord, you... At a certain point, it gets to a place where you just say, I'm not suffering. Like, there's, a, there's a, a really big problem in front of me, and there's no fear. There's no anxiety. Because the endurance has been built up over years and years and years where you get to a place where you say, 
Lord, I don't know what you're doing here, but I just... A hundred times before, you have been faithful. You have loved me. You have seen me through to the other side. So I'm done with that game. I'm done worrying. I'm going to put the fear away immediately. The endurance comes in. And what does that endurance produce? It produces hope because you know that even if on day one you're able to shelve that fear and that anxiety on all of the things and all of the distrust and the unfaithfulness, you shelve it on day one. The only thing that gets you through the rest of those weeks or months of suffering is the hope in knowing that God is going to fix it in whatever way he chooses, right? Not, it doesn't always get fixed in the way we want it to get fixed. You see how this is operating. We suffer with a purpose because every time we suffer, our faith grows stronger. Every time we suffer, we trust in the Lord more and more and more. And so I close with this question. Do you have peace with God? If you're trying to get there on your own merits, on your own good works, on your goodness, it will never work. Do you have hope for the future? Once again, if you're hoping in yourself and your ability to control the things that are coming, there's no comfort in that. It's no good. You have no control over those things. If your life is centered around you and what you can do and what you can accomplish, let me tell you that there's a better way. Because you and I both know, right, that that's full of failure, that that doesn't work, that that's not bringing you peace. It's not bringing you comfort. It's not bringing you happiness. The Bible is clear. We find these things only in Jesus. I implore you this morning, put your faith in Christ. If you have your faith in yourself and in your ability to do these things and accomplish these things, stop. Put your faith in Jesus And all of those things are instantly given to you. Not by your own merit, not by your own hard work, not by anything you have ever done. But through Jesus. You have peace with the Father instantly. You have access to the Father instantly. Those sufferings that you experience, they now have a purpose. God is there with you. He's going to strengthen you, bring you through those things. If you're trusting in yourself, stop it. Trust in the Lord. He loves you. He will forgive you. Repent, believe in him, have faith in him, and you will be justified. And all of these benefits that we've only seen just a few. It's going to continue. The next couple of weeks, we're just going to get to go through more and more and more benefits of being justified by faith. Praise God. This is going to be a good time together, right? This is going to be hopefully encouraging and challenging for all of us. But those can only be yours when you believe in Jesus. They're only yours when you have faith in him. I'm telling you this morning, stop trusting in yourself, trust in Jesus. For the Christian, right, we have this weird combination sometimes. Like, yeah, I trust in Jesus, but I'm also kind of trusting in me. And yeah, I have problems, but I'll figure that one out, and I'll fix that thing. Stop. Let the Lord work in you. Let him guide you. Don't trust in yourself, but trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are so grateful for your word and what you have revealed to us. Lord, we have such a hard time with this. We have such a hard time letting go of control, of recognizing that we're not capable of doing the things that we know we need to do. We're tempted every day to trust in our own strength and not in you. And so Lord, I just ask for each of us this morning you would grant us 
deeper faith. Lord, that every time that we're tempted to look to ourselves for hope and for peace, Lord, that we would put that to death. We would kill that idea and turn back to you and look to you alone. We know that this comes through the completed work of Jesus and not through ourselves. And we are so grateful, Lord, that you have given us your son, that he has done all of these things and accomplished all of these things for us in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.